When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Age of Radio. listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. Now January is a month of extremes. In Texas you can see the temperature reach 98 degrees like it did in 1997 down in South Texas near the border in Zapata, Texas. And then in 1959 it dropped to minus 22 at the Texas Panhandle's town of Spearman. And to reiterate the size of the state, to drive from Zapata to Spearman is an 11-hour, 49-minute drive without stopping to fill up for gas. That's 738 miles. Now, aside from the other holidays of New Year's and Martin Luther King Day, on the 19th, there are several interesting observances celebrated during this month nationwide. There's National Science Fiction Day on the 2nd, National Spaghetti Day on the 4th, the 9th is National Law Enforcement Appreciation Day, January 13th is National Rubber Ducky Day, National Beer Can Appreciation Day on the 24th, and it's also National Peanut Butter Day. So while you enjoy those days this month, I'm going to share a few historical highlights to add to your date book to think about as you journey through this month. We begin way back. If I had specific dates for the pre-contact era, I would share that. January right now would have been the time enough for the Karakawas to gather at their favorite fishing spots and catch the best and biggest fish of the year. The Caddo would have been hunting. They would have been out with their dogs tracking down bears and killing them for their fat. The Humanos down in, the, in southwest Texas the West, the Trans-Pecos, would have been getting ready to go on their trading missions in the spring. But we're going to start with the exploration era, where in 1540, on January 6th, Spanish Viceroy Antonio de Mendoza appointed Francisco Vesquez de Coronado to lead an expedition in search of the fabulous Seven Cities of Cibola. Now, we're going to be looking at this expedition pretty soon, so I'm not going to get too close into it. Um, as soon as we finish season one on Texas before, we're going to jump into it. Let's jump ahead to the Spanish Mission era, where on January 23rd, 1762, the mission of San Lorenzo de la Santa Cruz was established at El Canyon, about halfway between San Saba and San Juan Batista. This was near a mission that had been sacked a few years earlier by the Apaches that led to a really large expedition up to the Spanish Fort area in Monte County, Texas, where a battle occurred, and the Spanish basically had to retreat and march all the way back south in failure. Um, this mission, San Lorenzo de la Santa Cruz, didn't have much success, as many of the missions didn't, um, but it did last until its closure in 1771. This next date happened just after... Texas became a republic. On January 22nd, 1837, the first steamboat reached the new capital of Houston. Yes, the capital of Houston. Now, for those of you that think Austin has always been the capital, that's not the case. I found this story particularly interesting. But first, the steamboat that ascended Buffalo Bayou above Harrisburg was named the Laura 
and it carried Augustus C. and John K. Allen, the two brothers that had founded Houston in the late 1836. The Laura itself had been built in Louisville, Kentucky for use on the Brazos by Thomas F. McKinney and Samuel M. Williams. It arrived in Texas in 1835, and in April 1836, the Laura carried Vice President Lorenzo de Zavala and Secretary of the Treasury Bailey Hardiman to the San Jacinto Battleground. They were the first government officials to arrive from Galveston, where the government had retreated while Santa Ana had advanced. After the war, she was continued to be used to for her purpose of being brought to Texas, gathering and transporting Brazos River cotton until she had some damage and was not repaired. Now, Houston did not last long as the capital. On January 19, 1939, the Republic of Texas approved Waterloo as the new capital. Columbia, now West Columbia, had been the first capital in 1836, then Houston. There had been talk of making LaGrange the capital in 1838, but President Houston vetoed it. Houston's, Houston's nemesis and successor as President Mirabeau B. Lamar selected the hamlet of Waterloo and adjacent lands to become the capital. It wasn't a popular decision due to the area's remoteness from population centers being farther to the west and making it more vulnerable to attack by Mexican troops and uh, Native American attacks. Houston disapproved, of course. He and Lamar rarely saw eye-to-eye on anything. Uh, This made Austin's early years very precarious, and there's some exciting stories. There is an archive war that went on. We'll get into those stories in the future. Now, the Republic of Texas faced many challenges, one of which had been annexation. Many people thought the United States would eagerly invite Texas into the Union, but this was not the case. The issue of slavery and the divisiveness of the time caused a delay until the 1840s, and after annexation, trouble did not go away. The Mexican-American War of 1846-1848 led to our next date, January 13, 1847, the day the notorious John Gold Glanton entered in Walter P. Lane's Company of Rangers for service in the Mexican War if you're a fan of Cormac McCarthy's work, the novel Blood Meridian fictionalized many of Glanton's evil exploits after the Mexican War as the leader of a band of scalp hunters in Mexico. If you want a lot more detail into this, we'll get into it ourselves later. But if you want to find out a little bit more about John Joel Glanton and his murderous evil ways, Check out the Bloody Beavers podcast episode on Glenn for all the grisly details. Or just go read the book. Following the Mexican-American War and the establishment of the Rio Grande as the United States' southern border, Presidio County was established from the Bear Land District on January 3, 1850. This is a significant area because if you remember from the lesson on Humanos, they're on the present town of Presidio on the Rio Grande, known as La Junta de los Rios, is believed to be the oldest continuously cultivated farmland in Texas. They had an advanced civilization there for for many, 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 many years before other places did, where they had agriculture and they were able to promote trade, much like the Caddos did also. Just enough people lived there in the 1850s to make it a county and following its creation, people moved in to grow irrigated crops and graze herds on the Rio Grande in the 1850s and 1860s. As Texas grew as a state in terms of population, it also began to develop its amenities and technological necessities. On January 5, 1854, the first telegraph company was chartered, the Texas and Red River Company. It opened for business in Marshall, Texas on February the 14th, Patrons could message with New Orleans via Shreveport and with Alexandria, Louisiana, and Natchez, Mississippi. In San Antonio, on January 31st, 1859, Master William Minger opened his hotel. The Minger Hotel is a very famous landmark on Alamo Plaza and is famous for, as one of the best-known lodging houses in Texas that served as temporary domicile for such guests as O. Henry, the author, President Ulysses S. Grant and President Theodore Roosevelt, among many, many, many more. Now, the tensions delaying Texas from becoming a state came to a boil after the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860. And Texas, against Governor Sam Houston's advice, on January 29, 1861, 
the secession convention of the state of Texas voted overwhelmingly to secede from the United States. The state held a referendum to settle the legality of the move the next month on February 23rd, but suffice to say, 46,153 citizens voted for secession, while 14,747 voted against, leading to Texas' involvement on the losing side of a bloody civil war. We'll look at this next month a little closer, the vote and who voted against it, and the reasons why. While the major campaigns of the Civil War were fought to the east, Texas did see a share of violence and fighting demonstrated on January 1st, 1863, when General J.B. Magruder led Confederate forces in an assault on Union forces that had held Galveston since October. Using artillery and dismounted cavalry on two river steamers, the Bayou City and the Neptune, and infantry and cavalry that crossed over the railroad bridge to the island that were also supported by artillery, the Confederates entered Galveston on New Year's night, January 1st, 1863, and opened fire before dawn. The Union ship Harriet Lane sank the one of the Confederate vessels, but was itself captured by the crew of the surviving Confederate ship, the Bayou City. The Union commander's flagship ran aground, and the commander died trying to blow it up rather than surrender it. The Union's infantry in Galveston surrendered with the remaining Union ships sailing out to sea, ignoring Confederate surrender demands. The port remained under Confederate control for the rest of the war, but it was only open for a week because it was soon under blockade again. During the war, the people on the frontier constantly fretted about the threat of Comanche and Kiowa attacks. On January 5th, 1865, about 100 raiders from Indian Territory attacked a new settlement in southwestern Cook County, killing nine people and stealing many horses. It is said to be the last Indian raid in Cook County. Cook County is up on the Red River north of Dallas and Fort Worth. Uh, five years later, four brothers named Ross established a general store at the site, and it became Roston, and the community is still there. The first post office opened there in 1872. Three days later after this raid, on January 8, 1865, about 160 Confederates and 325 state militiamen lost the Battle of Dove Creek against the Kickapoo Indians, about 20 miles southwest of present-day San Angelo. A Confederate scouting party had discovered an abandoned, a large abandoned Indian camp the previous month, and a militia force under Captain S.S. Totten and state Confederate troops under Captain Henry Fawcett were dispatched to pursue the Indians. As the militia waited the creek to launch a frontal attack from the north, Confederate troops circled southwestward to try to seize the Indians' horses and prevent a retreat. They were not prepared for a well-armed Indian defense of possibly several hundred strong who fought from higher heavily wooded position as the militiamen slogged across the creek. Three days later, the Texans retreated eastward, having angered the peacefully intentioned Kickapoos who proceeded on to their destination of Mexico. Now, they kind of screwed up here, the Confederates and the Texans did, because the Kickapoo Indians, now an Algonquin-speaking group of fewer than a 1,000 individuals scattered from Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas in northern Mexico, they're the remnants of a larger tribe that once lived in the central Great Lakes region. Pushed by American Western expansion and violence, they had been broken into three groups, the Kickapoos of Kansas, the Kickapoos of Oklahoma, and the Kickapoos of Texas and northern Mexico. The Kansas Kickapoos, seeking to remain neutral in the Civil War, had been going to join their relatives in Mexico to stay out of the violence and conflict. The Battle of Dove Creek settled their mind on whose side they were, and it became a violent, became a violent period for the next several years of border raids across the river by the Kickapoos as they raided settlers along the Rio Grande. The Civil War ended that year, 1865, and the defeated Texans attempted to enact laws bias against freedmen. On January 3rd, 1867, General Joseph P. Kidu, what a wonderful name, Kidu, Assistant Commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau, declared that the Texas contract law was biased against freedmen and prevented its enforcement. The contract law was one of many black codes enacted by Southern legislators to keep blacks in an inferior social position and uphold continued legal discrimination. Kidu's effort helped reduce the success of the codes, but for a time, 
but after Reconstruction, Southerners redoubled their efforts to discriminate and enact new laws. Now, speaking of freedmen, one famous Texas freedman was a gentleman by the name of Britt Johnson. During the war, he and his family were enslaved to a man named Moses Johnson. During the October 1864 Great Raid, Britt Johnson's wife and two children were taken. One son, Jim, was killed. Johnson set out to the Llano Estacado, and after months of searching, he brought his family and other captives home. Afterwards, he moved his family to Parker County, where he set up a business as a teamster hauling goods between Weatherford and Fort Griffin. On January 24, 1871, about 25 Kiowas attacked Johnson's wagon train about four miles east of Salt Creek in Young County. Young County is up in what they called Northwest Texas at the time. Not to be confused with West Texas or the Panhandle. It's not that far from Cook County we were just talking about. Accompanied by two other black Teamsters, Johnson put up quite a fight. The men that buried the three counted 173 spent rifle and pistol shells. Their remains were placed in a common grave beside the road. Moving forward, the modern petroleum industry was born on January 10, 1901, with the discovery of the Spindletop oil field on a salt dome south of Beaumont, Texas. The 1,139-foot-deep Lucas Geyser blew a stream of oil over 100 feet high until it was capped nine days later. This single event brought massive change to Texas and the world. We'll drill deeper into the subject of oil in future episodes. But I'll add that many of the major oil companies like Texaco, Gulf Oil Corporation, Magnolia Petroleum Company, and Exxon Company USA were born at Spindletop or grew to a major corporate size because of their involvement in the Spindletop area. On January 4th, 1923, Fort Worth radio station WBAP created the basic format for country music variety show broadcasting with a program that featured a fiddler, a square dance caller, and Confederate veteran Captain M.J. Bonner. Nashville's Grand Ole Opry and Chicago's National Barn Dance followed and continued the format. WBAP had been started by the Fort Worth Star-Telegram under Eamon G. Carter in 1922. Now let's move forward six years later to 1929 to gain a little bit of perspective about how recent so many of these events are. On January the 4th, 1929, black cowboy Bose Eichard died in Austin. Having been born a slave in Mississippi in 1843, Mr. Eichard became one of the most famous black frontiersmen and trail drivers in Texas. After becoming a free man in 1866, he went to work for a man named Oliver Loving as a trail driver. You might remember Loving as being partnered to a man named Charles Goodnight. Goodnight and Loving were the basis for Gus and Call in Larry McMurtry's famous novel, Lonesome Dove. Eichard himself was a basis for the character Dietz, played superbly by the great Danny Glover in the TV series. Eichard continued working for Charles Goodnight after Loving's death, and they became lifelong friends. Goodnight once praised him by saying that he trusted Bose Eichard farther than any living man. He was my detective, banker, and everything else in Colorado, New Mexico, and the other wild country I was in. Eichard settled in Weatherford in 1869, and when Mr. Eichard died in 1929, Goodnight bought a granite marker and wrote an epitaph for his old friend, Bose Eichard, served with me four years on the Goodnight Loving Trail, never shirked a duty or disobeyed an order, rode with me in many stampedes, participated in three engagements with Comanches, splendid behavior. Both of my grandfathers and grandmothers very well could have met Mr. Eichard or Mr. Goodnight, men that were so tied to so many legendary events in Texas history. And they would have been able to meet them and remembered meeting them had they just been able to cross their paths because my grandparents were born in anywhere from 1915 to 1917. This man died in 1929 kind of shows you the context of when we talk about the good old days of the 1860s being so long ago. People lived from the 1860s into the 1960s. It happens. 
Um, and people that knew them definitely lived on after that. 13 days after Mr. Eichard died, something good happened. On January 17, 1929, the first printing of Popeye the Sailor Man appeared in the Victoria Advocate. It was the first newspaper in the nation to run L.D. Chrysler's Selger's comic strip, originally called Thimble Theater, which starred the Spanish-eating hero. Seagar himself called the Victoria Advocate Popeye's hometown. In gratitude, he contributed a special cartoon for the Advocate's historic 1934 and anniversary issues. Speaking to the newspaper's editor through Popeye, Seagar wrote, Please accept me Hardy's best wishes and felicitations on account of your paper's 88th anniversary. Victoria is me old hometown on account of that's where I got born at. And you're welcome for me not trying to really do a Popeye the Sailor Man uh, impression. Musician Roger Miller was born in Fort Worth, Texas on January 2nd, 1936 with no formal musical training and apparently never learned to read or write music. Miller became a successful country musical artist. In 1961, he made the country top 10 as a performer with When Two Worlds Collide, a song he co-wrote with Bill Anderson. He also had hits with Chug-A-Lug and Dang Me in both country and pop categories, and he followed them up with even more other more popular songs. Roger Miller, winner of 11 Grammy Awards, died in October of 1992. Now, 10 years before Miller's passing, the blues legend... Sam Lightning Hopkins died on January 30th, 1982. He was born in Centerville, Texas in 1912 and started playing a cigar box with chicken wire strings when he was eight. By age 10 in 1922, he was playing with music with his cousin Alger Texas Alexander and Blind Lemon Jefferson. You might remember about Blind Lemon Jefferson in the early blues scene in Dallas when I did the episode on Deep Ellum History. Go back and check that out. It kind of ties a lot of the what we've been talking about, the, the, the Jim Crow laws and the Reconstruction era and how that all came to be. And this magical place of Deep Ellum was created in the heart of segregation, Dallas. Uh, Jefferson encouraged him con- to continue. And so Hopkins played everywhere he could for the next several years. He settled in Houston in 1950, and even though he recorded prolifically between 1946 and 1954, it wasn't really until 1959 when Hopkins began working with legendary producer Sam Chambers that Hopkins found mainstream success. He switched to an acoustic guitar and became a hit in the folk blues revival of the 60s, playing at Carnegie Hall with Pete Seeger and Joan Baez. Now, he was also a huge hero to a couple of Texas wannabe songwriters, a couple of guys named uh, Towns Van Zant and Guy Clark, who followed him around and whenever they could, would meet with him and hang out with him and listen to him. In the 60s, they ended up launching their own music careers of their own. Personally, I admire the work of all three of these great artists. Um, they all had great success and were, were really amazing writers and performers. Now, Van Zant will close out with him since there's a link to Van Zant and Latin and Hopkins. Um, I consider him to be one of the personally one of the greatest poets and artists I've ever listened to. He himself died in January of 1997 on New Year's Day. His death came 44 years to the day after that of one of his other musical heroes, Hank Williams Sr. Van Zant was only 52 years old. He's probably best known by cover versions done by Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard of his song Poncho and Lefty. Emily Lou Harris made his song If I Needed You Famous. Um, a lot of other people have covered a number of his songs. And at the end of Big Le- The Big Lebowski, that's Towns Van Zant singing the Rolling Stones song Dead Horses, which is also a brilliant version that's on available on an album called Road Songs. Now, I'm going to do uh, detailed episodes on Lightning, Hopkins, Guy Clark, Towns Van Zandt in the future. And God willing, I'll be revisiting every one of the different events that happened in January in future episodes of Texas History Lessons and taking a closer look at all of these. I want to close with a quote from To Live Is To Fly, one of my favorite Towns Van Zandt songs. 
So here's a few words from Towns Van Zandt's song, To Live Is To Fly. And I'm not going to sing, and you're welcome for that. We all got holes to fill. Them holes are all that's real. Some fall on you like a storm. Sometimes you dig your own. The choice is yours to make. Time is yours to take. Some sail upon. Some dive into the sea. Some toil upon the stone. To live is to fly low and high. So shake the dust off of your wings and the tears out of your eyes. This month in Texas history for February. February is a great month, especially since it's the third month of winter. And did you know February is the only month where it's possible to go the entire time without having a full moon? I did not know that, but it makes sense. 28 to 29 days, that could happen. And the odds of being born on February 29th apparently are about 1 in 1,461. Some important days to celebrate in February are February 1st is Ice Cream for Breakfast Day. Of course, Groundhog Day is the 2nd. In Mexico, it's Constitution Day on the 3rd. And on the 3rd, it's also National Frozen Yogurt Day. Of course, you can't forget Valentine's Day on the 14th. And especially significant is Random Acts of Kindness Day on the 17th. So keep that in mind as you go through this short month. February is, in Catholic tradition, the month of purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Interesting side note, February came from the Latin name and word for the month of February that meant purification. It's also American Heart Month, National Bird Feeding Month, National Children's Dental Health Month, and it's especially important since we're here because of our interest in history that it is also Black History Month. So let's go back. We're going to time travel back first to February 20th, 1685. And let's begin by traveling down to the beautiful Gulf Coast where you can visit the rusty cast iron Matagorda Island Lighthouse that was constructed in 1852 to guide ships into Matagorda Bay. And if you do visit amongst the deer, the alligator, all the different bird species that are down there with mangrove trees, you will be standing near the site where, on February 20th, 1685, La Salle and his French colonists, having missed the mouth of the Mississippi River, set foot on land for the first time in three months since leaving St. Domingue. It was there that they set up a temporary campsite before being led on the ill-fated attempt at colonization that led to most of their deaths. One person that was there and survived and wrote his observations down described his first views of Texas. His name was Henri Jutel. Forgive me, again, pronunciation's not my best thing in the world but I do my best. He wrote, The country did not seem very favorable to me. It was flat and sandy, but did nevertheless produce grass. There were several salt pools. We hardly saw any wild fowl except some cranes and Canadian geese, which were not expecting us. The Karankawa were also not expecting them. And all but 15 of the 200 colonists were dead within five years, as was the leader, LaSalle. Despite his ineptitude, LaSalle's ventures did give France a claim to Texas and opened up the Mississippi River Valley to development. Several years later, and many, many miles away from Matagorda Island, John Quincy Adams, son of President John Adams and future President of the United States himself, signed a treaty with Spain that renounced the U.S. claim to Texas on February 22, 1819. 
Luis de Onís signed on behalf of Spain, and known as the Adams-Onís Treaty, it is especially significant in that in it, Spain ceded all the lands of the Spanish crown located east of the Mississippi, known as the Floridas, not just the state of Florida, but all the lands they call the Floridas, to the United States. Significant to Texas, it established the western boundary of Louisiana Purchase as beginning at the mouth of the Sabine River and running along its south and west bank to the 32nd parallel and thence directly north to the Red River. However, Spain delayed ratification of the Adams-Onís Treaty until 1821, the year that Mexico declared independence. And after that, Mexico refused to recognize the treaty boundary line. Now, Mexico could refuse to recognize the Adams-Onís Treaty as much as they wanted because we know what happens next. Most of you are aware that San Antonio was home first to several Coahuitan bands that lived in the area, which led the Spanish establishment of Mission San Antonio de Valero in 1718. It was secularized in the 1790s and became the base for the original Texas Rangers. The Compañía Volante, or Flying Company, of San Carlos de Palos, also known as the Alamo de Palos Company. They were mounted men, mounted warriors on horseback like the Rangers that traveled the frontier um, for the protection of the, of the settlers there. And they were um, a basis or the first earlier version of what would become when the Anglos moved in, Texas Rangers. And since then, the name Alamo began to be used for the site of Mission San Antonio de Valero, to the chagrin of many people. Now, one man, Nepo Musino Navarro, a disillusioned private in the Spanish military, he'd been transferred to the Alamo de Paris Company, and which was at one time stationed at Fort Tenochtitlan, which was a garrison near the Brazos River. He didn't like it there any better. He had several counts of where he deserted and got brought back. But they were so short-staffed, apparently, and everybody knew it was really a military assignment that he seemed to always get away with it. The company returned to the Presidio in San Antonio in 1832, and during the political disorder over the next few years, Navarro cast his lot on February 22, 1836, with Juan Seguin's company of Tejanos. Seguin's company, with Navarro in arms, served as rear guard for General Sam Houston's army, and Navarro fought with Seguin at the Battle of San Jacinto. He lived until 1877. Now, I'm unaware of any connection to the great Tejano leader, Jose Antonio Navarro of, of San Antonio, but if I find it or you can inform me if there is an actual re relation, let me know. Two days after Navarro cast his lot with the Texan Revolution, William Barrett Travis, commanding officer at the besieged Alamo, put to paper the letter that has been immortalized in Texas mythology. On February 24th, 1836, he wrote, To the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character, to come to our aid with all dispatch. Reinforcements did arrive, having heard his call. And if you recall, Travis also famously swore victory or death. And as we know, he and the men he led and had been reinforced by, they received death. And Travis was the, one of the first ones apparently to die on March 6th. Whether Travis and his men died in vain is a matter of debate, but the result of their revolution is not. Houston defeated Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana at the Battle of San Jacinto and had him sign two treaties. Texas lived on for years as an independent republic while the nation of Mexico refused to acknowledge the validity of the treaties signed by Santa Ana. The Republic of Texas did not have an easy time of it, and to the relief of many and to the disappointment of others that dreamed of a Texas empire someday, on February 19, 1846, the Republic of Texas officially relinquished its control to the first legislature of the state of Texas. 
President Jones, Anson Jones, gave his final speech as President of Texas, in which he said, The Lone Star of Texas has culminated in following an inscrutable destiny, has passed on and become fixed forever in that glorious constellation which all free men must reverence and adore the American Union. The final act in this great drama is now performed. The Republic of Texas is no more. And according to Stephen Harrigan in his recent great book on Texas history, as the flag was being lowered, the flagpole broke, and Sam Houston caught the flag before it hit the ground. But, as we all know also, this love affair with the Union did not last long. As a state, Texas wasn't even old enough to get her driver's license before things went bad. On February 23, 1861, following the state secession convention, the people of Texas voted on a referendum to secede from the Union. The vote was 46,153 for secession and 14,747 against. 18 of the 122 counties that voted against secession and 11 others cast as much as 40% against. 75% of voters sided with keeping the enslaved 30% of the state's population that didn't get to vote. They voted to keep them in servitude. To give it a closer look, consider that 46,153 people that decided the fate of the state's population of 604,215. 421,649 were free, and 182,566 were held in bondage as slaves. Then the war that followed brought them emancipation. Now, one of those enslaved in Texas at that time was a man named Walter Moses Burton. Thomas Burke Burton brought Burton, Walter Moses, to Texas from North Carolina in 1850, when Walter was 21 years old. They settled and lived in Fort Bend County near Houston, kind of to the southeast, I believe. But unlike a lot of slave owners at the time, Thomas Burton taught Walter how to read and write And Fort Bend was one of the six majority black counties in Texas in the 1850s. And by 1860, the slave population totaled 4,127, more than twice that of the 2,100, excuse me, 2,016 whites. After the war, Thomas sold Walter several large plots of land, and Walter Moses Burton thrived. In 1869, he became the first black sheriff not only in Texas, but in the United States, to be elected. He also served as tax collector and president of the Fort Bend County Union League. He ran for the Texas Senate in 1873, and after having the election contested on February 20, 1874, the Texas Senate confirmed that his election was valid, and he became a senator to the Texas Senate. He served in the Senate from 1874 to 1875 and from 1876 to 1882. He was very active in championing the education of blacks, and his efforts helped get Prairie View Normal School, now Prairie View A&M University, established in 1876. It was the first state-supported institution of higher learning for African Americans in Texas. Walter Moses Brown died in 1913, and Mr. Burton was the last African-American elected to the Texas Senate until Barbara Jordan's election in 1966. He was also the last black sheriff of Fort Bend County until this past November 3rd, 2020, when Eric Fagan was elected and he took office January 1st, 2021 as the second black sheriff in the history of Fort Bend County. Now, on February 26, 1946, 70 years after Walter Moses Burton helped pass legislation creating Prairie View A&M, Heman Sweat, whose father had graduated from Prairie View in 1880, met with a delegation from the NAACP in Austin, Texas, and then went down to the University of Texas campus where he presented a formal request for admission to the university's law school to University of Texas President 
Theophilus S. Painter and other university officials. He was, of course, not admitted, being black, and Texas had a policy of segregation. And it was verified that he could not go after the Attorney General of the state of Texas ruled to uphold the state's policy of segregation. The legal battle that followed led to the landmark case of Sweat versus Painter, 339 U.S. 629, in 1950, in which the United States Supreme Court ruled that Sweat and other black candidates could not be denied admission to the law school based on race. This was a successful challenge to the separate but equal doctrine of racial segregation established in 1896 by the famous case of Plessy versus Ferguson. Sweat versus Painter was also an influential case that played a factor in the landmark case of Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, in which the United States Supreme Court ruled that U.S. state laws establishing racial segregation in public schools were unconstitutional, even if the segregated schools were otherwise equal in quality. Sweat did register in September 1950 to University of Texas Law School, but health problems prevented him from finishing. He did go on and have a successful career as an activist and as a worker and other projects. And in 2005, the Travis County Courthouse in Austin was renamed the Heman Marion Sweat Travis County Courthouse. Welcome to Texas History Lessons. I am Michael, and thanks again for joining me as I take a look back at a specific month in Texas history for this month in Texas history. And this particular month, we're looking at March. I hope everybody's enjoying taking these little time travel from one year to another in a particular month. And I've enjoyed seeing some of the little strings that kind of connected the history of Texas through different months over the decades. I hope. Y'all have enjoyed that too. But so here we are for March. March, of course, as most of you know, is named for the Roman god of war, Mars. And originally it was the first month of the year until January and February became the first and second months around 450 BCE. And it was the month for war when military campaigns halted by the cold of winter would be resumed as the earth began to warm. And as we're going to see, war would also play a large part in the history of Texas during the many marches over the years. Now, March is also Women's History Month. It's Irish American Heritage Month. It's National Celery Month and it's National Frozen Food Month. Among many, many other observances that people <laughs> like to observe, some more serious than others. March 8th is International Women's Day, celebrating the achievements of women and the progress made towards women's rights. March 9th is International Fanny Pack Day. Um, hope you enjoy that one if, if you observe that. Uh, the 10th is Harriet Tubman Day. March 14th is the start of daylight saving time, so get ready to spring forward and set your clocks an hour ahead on that annoying day that we have to observe every year. Be sure to beware the Ides of March on the 15th, and on March 16th, you can celebrate National Panda Day. It's also the birthday of Benito Juarez, a Zapotec who was born in 1806, and he served as the 26th president of Mexico, and he was Mexico's first indigenous president the 17th of march is my wife's favorite it's saint patrick's day march 20th is the vernal or spring equinox in the northern hemisphere when the sun will be directly over the equator passover begins at sundown on march 27th and the 27th is also international whiskey day 
Other things that you can celebrate in Texas during March are the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, the second largest fair in North America and the biggest livestock show and rodeo in the world. I did get to visit that one time in the past, and it was quite fun. South by Southwest is celebrated in March in Austin. And there's the North Texas Irish Festival in Dallas. And in South Texas, you can attend Border Fest, a cultural and music festival celebrating the Texas Rio Grande Valley's diverse cultures. And of course, most people get excited in March because March of 1836 was when Texas declared its independence. We'll hit on those important dates of 1836, but there are several other important things that have happened in the marches of other years. So let's take a look at some of those. Back in 1721, on March 20th, an expedition led by the governor of Coila y Tejas, the Marquis de San Miguel de Aguayo, crossed the Rio Grande. Now, in reality, there is nothing significant about crossing the Rio Grande, but as Texans, we like to point to the Rio Grande as our border. So even the Handbook of Texas says that's when they entered Texas. We'll see later on that there's quite a bit of dispute about the land between uh, Rio Grande and the Nueces River to the north. Um, Mexico always asserted that the Nueces was the southern border of Tejas. And I've been in some interesting discussions online, especially on Twitter with people that they still assert that that's the southern border of Texas. More power to them. So the Marquis, whose full name is Jose de Azlor y Verto de Vera, sorry if I didn't say that quite right, but I'm working on it, traveled under the directive of the Viceroy of New Spain to reassert Spain's control in the part of Texas by reoccupying the East Texas missions and presidios that had been abandoned during the French invasion of 1719. The expedition was very successful, and France never again challenged Spain's claim. At the time when the Marquis went up into Texas, there was only one Presidio and two missions in the area. By the time he left, there were four Presidios and ten missions. And he also had influence on the colonization in Texas because he recommended the settlement of 400 families between San Antonio and the East Texas missions. And out of this came the arrival of the Canary Islanders to San Antonio or Bear. Several years later, on March 16th, 1758, an extremely large party of Comanches and other allied North Texas bands called in general Norteños, launched an attack on Mission Santa Cruz de San Saba. The mission had been established the previous year on the San Saba River northwest of San Antonio near present-day Menard. I always get confused and think it's at the town of San Saba. It's not. It's actually near a town called Menard. And its purpose was to convert the Apaches. Now, we're going to look a lot closer to this very soon once we get into Spain in Texas, the Spanish-Texas period, and the reasons for the missions and the reasons sometimes the native populations would invite the Spaniards to establish missions. The Comanches, though, did not approve of the mission's presence in their territory. They'd been fighting the Apaches for decades, pushing them farther and farther south to gain control of the Plains hunting grounds. And in the attack, they killed two priests and six others and burned the stockade. This led to a Spanish retaliation effort that ended in a defeat at the Wichita villages on the Red River in present-day Monte County near a little community called Spanish Fort because when people moved in there, they thought there had been a Spanish fort there. hadn't been. It had been a Wichita village, and there had been French traders there as well. The northern tribes soundly defeated the Spanish army, and war with the Comanche would be a constant for decades. Not for just for the Spanish. We'll see an episode that happened in the 1800s that led to decades and decades worth of war with the Comanches against the Anglo-Texans. Now, I'm going to take this opportunity to take a short break and thank Age of Radio for hosting Texas History Lessons, and we'll be right back. More bloodshed occurred at a battle 
called the Battle of Rosillo Creek, also known as the Battle of Salado. This occurred on March 29, 1813. Now, this was during the Mexican War of Independence, and coinciding with that was something you've probably heard of, the Gutierrez-McGee filibustering campaign against Spain that came with a lot of people from United States territory. Now, this side of this battle is on a prairie about nine miles southeast of San Antonio near the confluence of Rosillo and Salado Creeks, hence the different names for the battle. On one side was the Republican Army of the North, had about 600, 900 men, and it was led by Jose Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara, the Gutierrez in the name of the Gutierrez McGee filibustering campaign. And also leading the army was a gentleman named Samuel Kemper. Now, they were fighting against a Spanish royalist army, a larger army of 900 to 1,500 men, led by Manuel Maria de Salcedo, the Spanish governor of Tejas, and Simón de Herrera, the Spanish governor of Nuevo León. The battle was very bloody, but it was also very brief. In about an hour, the Republican Army of the North killed 100 to 330 of their opponents, captured almost all of their arms and ammunition, six cannons, 1,500 horses and mules, and the Republican Army supposedly lost only six men. Now, following the battle, San Antonio was captured and the Republic of Texas was created. Wait, what? No. 1836, Republic of Texas. Well, the independence had been declared before. Republic of Texas was declared after this battle and after the capture of San Antonio, but it was very short-lived, and it ended in something that we'll take a look at later in the bloodiest battle ever fought on Texas soil. Can you name what it is? It's the Battle of Medina. It occurred in 1813 also, and quite surprisingly to some, there was a young lieutenant in the army there whose name was Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna. We're going to be hearing quite a bit more about him in this episode. Now, Spain maintained control for a few more years over Mexico and its state of Texas. And on March 27, 1817, Antonio Maria Martinez was appointed the last Spanish governor of Texas. He was the Spanish governor that gave Moses Austin the original permission to bring 300 settlers to Texas. But before Austin could do that, we know that he died and there was a change of government. There was no longer a Spanish government controlling the, the situation. That Mexico was now its own independent and new, a new agreement would be necessary. That agreement came on March 24th, 1825, when the Mexican legislature passed the State Colonization Act, or law, of March 24th, 1825. Now, the purpose of the law was the peopling of Coelia y Tejas and encouraging farming and ranching and commerce in the state. And it was out under this law that Stephen F. Austin, Moses' son, and Green DeWitt and other impresarios started their colonies in bringing in people that renounced their United States citizenship to become Mexican citizens. They had to take an oath and become Mexican citizens and follow the rules. Now, for a variety of reasons, they didn't do this for very long. Um, the situation bringing the Anglo colonists led to the famous events of 1836. Um, we will look deeper into those reasons later. This is kind of just a teaser of things to come. And on March 2nd, 1836, declared itself independent. In the early morning hours of that day, March 2nd, 58 delegates signed the newly drafted Declaration of Independence. And it's also a significant day that they signed this on the birthday of Sam Houston. On March 2nd, 1793, Sam was born to Samuel and Elizabeth Houston in Virginia. And he, of course, became the leader of the Texan Army. Uh, that actually, I think, happened on March the 4th. And he ended up leading that army to defeat Santa Ana at the Battle of San Jacinto in the next month. Now, despite Sam Houston's preference that San Antonio 
and the site of the Spanish San Antonio de Valero mission, known as the Alamo, not be used as a point of defense. He thought it was a waste of resources and not practical. William Barrett Travis, James Bowie, Davy Crockett, and over 180 other defenders were defeated and killed on March 6th by Santa Ana. Houston started his retreat, known as the Runaway Scrape, on March 11th. The Mexican forces defeated Texas insurgents at the March 12th Battle of Refugio, or Refugio, at at and at the March 19th Battle of Coleto, where Colonel James Fannin surrendered on March the 20th, and then. On March 27, 1836, under orders from Santa Ana, at least 342 Texian rebels that had been under the command of Fannin, who Santa Ana labeled perfidious foreigners, and because they were traitors, not soldiers, they were executed, and their bodies were left unburied. Eventually, we do know, though, of course, Sam Houston did defeat Santa Ana, and a new Republic of Texas secured an uneasy independence. I quoted a historian, international historian that alluded to the Republic period as something as where they, it was very successful and all sincerity and honesty. It really wasn't an easy period for Texas had a number of issues during that entire time. Um, among the multiple issues, Indian relations was a really big problem. Some, like Sam Houston, preferred a friendlier, more conciliatory, working-together approach. And others, and he had lots of opponents on this issue, others just supported violence and genocide if necessary. And so, when another group of leaders that didn't agree with Houston were in control of the Republic, on March 19th, 1840, in San Antonio, Texas, Republic of Texas soldiers killed about 30 Pinateca Comanche leaders and warriors. They also killed five women and children. The event is known as the Council House Fight. Others remember it as the Council House Massacre. It was a very devastating event for the Comanches, and all the hatred that they had for the Spanish transferred immediately to the Texans. And the Comanche Wars would continue for over 30 years. And the reason they were there is they had... That he had shown up in San Antonio, having promised to bring in captives. Well, they brought in one girl, and the Texans insisted that they bring in more. Well, they these particular bands said, "Well, this is all we have," and part of it we're going to see a lot of misunderstanding between the way the Comanches did things. And the way the Texans did things led to a lot of the problems because one Comanche leader did not control every group of Comanches throughout the state. As we've seen looking back at the indigenous populations, a lot of the first peoples had a very democratic, is that the right term? I'm going to use it, way of looking at things so much so that if they didn't want to do something, you didn't have to do something. Now, that was not the case in every society, but I'm being very broad. But that's kind of the way the situation was with the Comanches at this time. There was just no one person that could give an order. Um, so for the next 30 years, Comanche wars with Texans would continue. Mexico never accepted Texas independence. Despite the treaties that Santa Ana signed, um, there was always tension between Mexico and her rebellious daughter. On March 5th, 1842, Mexican General Rafael Vasquez and 700 men occupied San Antonio without a fight. He raised the Mexican flag and declared Mexican laws in effect. He did depart in a few days, and this was one of a number of raids and counter-raids that were happening in the 1840s between Mexico and Texas. He departed on March 9th, and like I said, over the next year, Mexico kept seeking to reassert control over Texas, and Texas kept trying to maintain its independence. A year later, on March 25th, 1843, 
17 Texans out of a total of about 176 were executed at Salado in Tamaulipas, Mexico. They had been part of the Mir expedition, one of the last raids from Texas into this disputed area south of the Nueces. Defeated, they were supposed to march to Mexico City. Instead, they attempted a mass escape, and about 176 were recaptured in Santa Ana, there's that gentleman again. He ordered that one out of ten be shot. Each man drew a bean from a jar. And if they drew one that was black, that man was executed. Jumping forward into the Civil War, March 28th marks the defeat of Texas Confederate troops under Brigadier General Henry Hopkins Sibley. Where, as the handbook of Texas, I like the way they said they were whipped by the Union forces at Glorieta Pass, New Mexico. And this, in effect, checked Confederate ambitions in the West. March 30th, 1870, marks the day that the United States President Ulysses Grant signed the act to end congressional reconstruction and readmit Texas into the Union. The Texas legislature had finally approved the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution the month before in February. And for our final date for this month in Texas history, for this March, we're going to jump ahead several decades to March 18th, 1937. On this day, Texas suffered its third worst disaster to date behind the Galveston hurricane of 1900 and the Texas city disaster, which we'll get to in the, in the future also. And it's the worst disaster the United States has suffered in a school related disaster in its history. Now, despite the hardships of the great depression, the discovery of oil in East Texas near new London led to a booming economy. A lot of people got rich during this time and the town of new London flourished and to do their best for their children, they built a beautiful, elaborate, combined junior high and high school. And on this day, a shop teacher flipped on an electric sander he had been repairing and ignited a massive amount of natural gas that had leaked out in a large crawl space under this beautiful, large, massive school. Numbers vary, but it's safe to say that almost 300 students and faculty died that day. It was a disaster that killed a generation. Thank you for listening to This Month in Texas History with me. This has been another episode of Texas History Lessons. Email texashistorylessons at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter. And I have a website, texashistorylessons.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks to all the supporters on Patreon. Everybody be good to one another. We'll see you again soon. Thanks and adios. Let's take a quick break. Asia Radio for hosting the show, and we'll, we'll be back with some closing thoughts and some announcements. I want to thank everyone that helps the show through Patreon and buy me a cup of coffee. You can support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes. Every little bit aids the show's efforts to create interesting history episodes. Go check out a couple of my favorite history podcasts, Wild West Extravaganza and The History Cafe. Both offer fascinating tales from the past. And I always look forward to what they're coming up with next. And for music, remember to listen to Texas River Tonk, a podcast that originates as a radio show every Friday down in San Marcos. Blake does a great job on it. Check out Aaron Lee Bentley on Off Mic, Off the Record. He also has some great Texas musicians on. And as always, remember Rev Waterman's Hymns of the Highway podcast. All three sharing the goal of promoting great Texas music. And they do it in different ways. So it's all entertaining. Now, Mr. Derek McClendon, who wrote and plays the Texas History Lessons theme, Walking Through History, he's got a new album out. 
Interstate Daydreamer. It features nine pretty amazing songs. So please go listen to it and grab yourself a copy wherever you get your digital music. Go check out his website, Derek McClendon Music. You can buy some merch from him there. Find out where he's doing shows. Go see him. They're all so good. I'm having a hard time trying to figure out which one is my favorite. So they are all my favorites now. And I'll probably share a track of it in the future. But right now, just go out there and do the work yourself and enjoy it. Go give it a listen. Buy yourself a copy. Um, There's also new music out from Zach Welch and Robert Herrera. They have an EP live from Aggieland. It's got some great songs on it. So look for that. Remember also to go check out Mr. Melvin Edwards' The Eyes of Texans. It's a great book, and he's a great gentleman. I look forward to talking with him again. So thanks, everyone. We'll be back soon with more Texas history. So take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Be kind. Be kind.